Wow. Here we are. All things considered, I'm surprised we made it. This is the 12th episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things. It's first birthday. 12 months, 12 episodes, 24 stories. Stories about endless ropes and the spaces between life and death. Stories about strange creatures in the woods and stranger people in the house. Stories about mysteries and behavior and the strange way that light interacts with the arcane and about embarrassment. I hope you've enjoyed it all. I certainly have. Here's to the next 12. This month, we're going back to horror's roots. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two ghost stories. In the first, Fever Dreams, a man recounts a childhood illness during which he almost died. In the second, In the Static, a man obsessed with number stations hears something else buried in the static. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. When I got sick when I was young, it tended to be catastrophic. Aches, shakes, a fever for days and days. I think it was karma for all the days I faked to avoid going to school. I'd work up a fake cough, make some retching sounds in the bathroom, and pour a glass of water into the toilet bowl. Really sell it, and then enjoy a day off. But then, when I actually got sick, which wasn't rarely, I'd come down with something that resembled a boy on his deathbed. I remember one time, my nightmares were of a room steadily increasing temperature, like I was being cooked alive, some sort of lobster, and when I woke up, I had a fever so high that my parents couldn't avoid taking me to the hospital. Another time, I woke up in bad shape and called for my mom that I was sick. She called back that I was going to school, no buts about it. And when I finally managed to get out of bed and stumble down the hallway to the bathroom, the pallid face looking back at me scared me so bad I broke down crying. My mom found me a few minutes later collapsed to the floor, and she had to carry me back to my bed and wrap cold washcloths around my neck so my blood didn't boil my brain. But the time I want to tell you about now didn't resemble those times. It was altogether stranger, and I'm still not sure if what I saw was real. It has none of that quality that memories usually do, of becoming soft around the edges as time passes. On the contrary, it seems to my memory, to my mind, that it's come into sharper focus as I've thought about it more. 
I was in the third grade, and it was deep in the winter. Days were short and snow piled high. We were only a few weeks into the new quarter, after coming back from our holiday break. I could see the sickness spreading through the classroom. First it was Mark in row two toward the front of the class, then Whitney in row three. Austin, who sat just behind Whitney. Then Morgan, who sat just in front of me. It hit hard. Overnight my throat had swollen. My fever was building. My joints were locking up. I had a rash on my chest and shoulders. I couldn't breathe through my nose. I didn't go to school. Imagine that. The fever built over the next day until I was uncomfortable in any sort of fabric at all. I laid on the couch for most of the day watching cartoons that left the frame of the television, nodding off here and there, groaning in pain. I drank ice-cold soda water, but it wouldn't quench my thirst or douse my fever. When my mom laid me down to sleep in my bed, I could barely see straight, but she gave me a hearty dose of cough syrup, and so I fell right asleep. I opened my eyes sometime in the night, awoken by a bizarre creaking from one of the doors in my room. This creaking was bizarre for two reasons. First, my father's biggest pet peeve was squeaking hinges. He kept a can of WD-40 in the cabinet nearest to the kitchen sink, and at even the slightest indication a door's hinges were starting to tighten or rust, he'd run to his can of WD-40, clear the room, and hose it down. This was in addition to the bi-monthly preventative care, where he would make us all go play outside, strap on a face mask, and visit every doorway in the house with his can of lubricant. I think he bought the stuff in bulk. Second, and more bizarre, is that the doorway that creaked loud enough to wake me from my drug-induced fever dream wasn't one of the two doors my bedroom had in it, my bedroom door or my closet door. Both were shut tight. My head, heavy with illness, stayed embedded in the pillow as my unfocused eyes looked from door to door, trying to detect a movement in one of them that I missed, but none came. Instead, in the corner of my eye, I caught sight of a large, indistinct object moving about the far side of my room. I blinked while refocusing my eyes, trying to clear the sludge that was piling up under my eyelids, and when my gaze finally came to rest on the shape, I couldn't quite understand what I was seeing. It was large, vaguely familiar, like an oversized pillow leaning against the wall, or an old man with hunched shoulders. Gray. Not uniformly, though. Countless gray tones swirled and rippled over its form, stripes and splotches sliding over themselves. It seemed to sway in place while I looked, staring back at me and sizing me up. In my dizzy fever, it didn't even occur to me to scream. Next to the shape, I found the source of the creaking hinges, a third door in my room, one that didn't belong but was there, open, presumably from the shape walking through it. When I laid my eyes on the door, the shape changed its behavior. It must have thought I was piecing something together, figuring something out, but in truth I was so fucked up from the cough syrup and high body temperature that I wasn't really processing any of this information in real time. The shape seemed to puff up, make itself bigger 
The gray swirls seemed to align themselves and then they began to fold away, fold out. From my place on the bed, it seemed that the shape was blooming, each gray petal moving to make room for the next and the next, and then finally, out of the center of the gray bloom, a face, placid, emotionless, and staring right at me. That's when I finally screamed, and by the time my parents had rushed into my room, the shape had backed into the mystery door, closed it, and the door had disappeared. They gave me another dose of cough syrup, and I didn't wake up until almost noon the next day. I was not any better when I woke up. By all measures, I think I was worse. My head was pounding. My throat felt like it was closing. My rash had spread. And my fever. My God, the fever. When I think about how close my body came to cooking my brain, I still get shivers. This was the second day my mom had stayed home with me. She sat nearby and called the doctor and repeated each of the doctor's questions to me and then repeated my answers back into the phone. When we were done with the -the over-the-phone examination, the doctor said it sounded like the same illness I had gotten three months prior and six months before that. My mom agreed, and they decided I probably didn't need much more than rest and fluid. I spent another day on the couch. The pictures on the TV smeared together, twisting themselves into arcane patterns. It didn't matter what I was watching, none of it made any sense. My mom brought me cold liquids every half hour or so, and I drifted in and out of consciousness just long enough to drink them. It was mid-afternoon when I woke up from a short nap and found my throat scorched and dry. Every breath felt like sandpaper. I couldn't swallow without my swollen throat sticking to itself. I couldn't cry out or even speak to get my mom's attention. My unfocused eyes turned to the second floor, to the loft that overlooked the living room where my parents' bedroom was, and my mind was consumed by one thing. Hoping, wishing, my mom would come out of her bedroom to bring me something to drink. I focused all of my energy on that singular task, summoning my mom out of her room. A minute passed, maybe two. I sharpened my thoughts against the throbbing in my head. My eyes zeroed in on her bedroom door. I concentrated like you might if you thought you could move objects with your mind. Not that I had ever thought of that myself. Finally, after several minutes of deep concentration, my parents' bedroom door opened, and my mom stepped out. Just a blurry silhouette to my fevered eyeballs at this distance, but an immense relief washed over my body. She walked a few feet across the landing to the top of the staircase that would have carried her down to the first floor, to me and some cold beverage, but then kept going, walking across the landing and out of sight. I tried to call out to her, but the only sound that came out of my mouth was a single squeak, which is enough to make me shut my eyes involuntarily from the pain. I opened my eyes again, my vision even worse now that my eyes were flooded with tears, hoping to see her again, hoping to wave my arms this time and get her attention that way. I focused on summoning her a second time, this time from the opposite end of the landing. Another minute passed, then another. I narrowed my eyes to direct whatever psychic power I thought I had over the situation. Then, my parents' bedroom door opened again. A shape stepped out onto the landing. 
crossed the landing to the staircase and kept walking to the opposite end of the landing and out of sight. My fevered brain tried to catch up to my pounding heart. Had I just not seen my mom cross back to her bedroom? Had I missed that when I was grimacing in pain from my throat? Before I could fully process what I had witnessed, my parents' bedroom door opened for a third time. A shape stepped out, crossed the landing, reached the staircase, and then stopped. It noticed me watching it. It must have. It lorded over me, making its presence known. Another shape emerged from the hallway across the living room, the one that leads to the kitchen, the one on the first floor. It was my mother holding a glass of lemon-lime soda to quench my throat. The shape upstairs had disappeared from the landing by the time I looked back up there. My eyes fluttered open sometime late in the night. I had to use the bathroom, maybe for the first time in days. It was hard to get out of bed. Felt like the fever had cooked my muscles and they were no longer flexible, just hard, tough meat wrapped in thin skin. I stumbled, taking my first steps out of bed, disoriented, feeling almost drunk on the quantities of cough syrup I had consumed over the past two days. I hit the floor with my knees and they slid apart, rubbing on the carpet, giving myself an instant rug burn. I whimpered and clamored to my feet, standing up straight for the first time in at least 36 hours. My brain spun in my skull, trapped in some whirlpool, and I grasped for something solid to hold on to. I found a bedpost and reoriented myself in the dark room, focusing on my bedroom door, the first thing my eyes locked onto. I ran into the doorway, into the wall, into a potted plant, and into a lamp all the way down the short hallway from my bedroom to the bathroom. When I turned on the bathroom light, its brightness surprised me, sent me stumbling backward into the shower curtain, which I grabbed but managed to avoid tearing down. I used the toilet somehow and celebrated even this small feat before returning down the gauntlet that was the hallway back to my room. I hit the same plant and the same lamp and the same walls. Walking through the doorway to my bedroom, my fever caught up to me. It flooded to my head, sending me off balance. The muscles in my eyes rebelled, and focusing on anything in the dark became impossible. I fumbled forward, feeling for my bed. And when I did, I heard a door creak open behind me. The sound cracked through the fog, splitting my eardrums. My muscles, only tenuously cooperating with me already, decided to tense completely, rooting me to the spot. The squeaking hinges behind me terminated in a comically long conclusion, and then left me in silence with the knowledge that a door that shouldn't be there had just opened behind me. I heard the rustling of fabric, then caught a whiff of something old and dusty, like someone had bottled the smell of an old attic crawl space and sprayed it right into my nose. Something came to rest on my right shoulder, like a leaf in the forest, then brushed over the back of my neck. When it reached my other shoulder, it paused. For a while I stood and listened, thinking the thing had left, or that I had imagined it. I worked up the courage to move in my head, and counted down to myself before I made the move to jump under my blankets. 
Three, two, one. Of course I didn't go on the first time I counted down. I was still much too scared and what if that thing was still there waiting for me to move before it ripped me to shreds? Three, two, one. No, I didn't go that next time either, but I promised myself that this third time would be the last. Three, two, you won't go, something whispered in my left ear. It was still there. I dove into bed under the blankets, screaming for my parents. I refused the cough syrup the following night, spit it out three times before my parents gave up. I didn't want to sleep that night. I'd stay up, stay vigilant. Of course, my illness wasn't getting any better either. My fever was higher than ever. I could barely see. My throat had all but closed up. It was time to take me to the hospital, and even I could see that. My dad changed my clothes, changed me out of the pajamas I had been wearing for three days and into something new. Then Mom wrapped me in a blanket. They both left the room to go get their keys, wallets, purses. When one of them returned to get me a minute later, my vision was so bad I couldn't tell which one it was. They didn't say anything to me, just walked across the room to my closet where they stopped. I assumed they were grabbing my coat or something, though I didn't know why they'd be doing that. After all, I was wrapped in this blanket and getting outrageously warm already. Mom? I squeaked out through my burning throat. Dad? Whoever it was didn't answer me. They stood there and swayed, swayed at the hip as if they were dancing. Then, finally, the figure repeated, You won't go, and dissolved back into the shadows of my closet. A moment later, my dad returned, scooping me up. He put me into the back seat of the car, got into the driver's seat, and my mom got into the passengers. When he turned the key in the ignition, the car wouldn't start. Wouldn't start at all, no matter how many times my dad tried, no matter how many times my mom tried either. That night the fever got so bad I almost died. The doctors said I only survived because my parents kept a constant rotation of cold compresses on my body to keep my temperature down. The next morning, when the truck arrived to tow our car to the mechanic, he tried the key one last time and the car started fine. Helping out the show is easy. Just make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. Up next, In the Static. four notes rising scale. It sounded like this. That repeated seven times, and then the message was read by a woman's voice after that. It supposedly broadcast out of East Germany until 1990. The Lincolnshire Poacher is a pretty famous one. That one started like this.
The song continued and then finished, and then the message was read by a female voice. That one broadcast out of Cyprus until 2008. My favorite one is probably Phonetic Alphabet NATO, familiar to anyone who's a fan of the band Wilco. It features a female voice repeating the phrase Yankee, Hotel, Foxtrot. A clip of this one is used on the Wilco album of the same name. Number stations, spy stations, meant to pass messages to spies behind enemy lines. They fascinated me for a long time. I was introduced to them maybe five years ago. All the ones I've talked about so far are defunct, off the air. But they were my first introduction into the concept. There are a few internet communities dedicated to them, too, which made my search for new recordings easier. I fell in love with number stations the same way a hobbyist bird watcher might fall in love with the birds he spots through his binoculars, or the way an amateur astronomer might fall in love with spotting the planet Jupiter through her new, more powerful telescope. I love the texture of the audio. They're shortwave AM, so the quality is rough, jagged, and the sounds, tones, and voices are almost always synthesized. And so, combined with the poor broadcasting quality, recordings of number stations have an ethereal quality to them. At times, they seem occult. You sometimes have to remind yourself that these were used to pass covert messages to actual agents behind enemy lines, and that they weren't being used to contact otherworldly beings. So, a lot of these stations aren't broadcasting anymore, but there are a few that are. The internet communities I mentioned earlier make listening to the ones still broadcasting easier, and in fact one of the main hobbies of the people in those communities is to monitor those few and compile a list of activity, because that's the other thing about number stations. The broadcasts are exciting. A burst of musical notes and a string of numbers read by a synthesized voice. How unusual. How mysterious. But between those broadcasts can be hours or even days of silence. So, now that you've had that crash course in number stations, let me tell you about the one I volunteered to monitor through an internet community I joined called Number Monitors SW. The SW stands for Southwest, as in Southwest United States. And it's called that because the Number Monitors Southwest started as a physical group in the 70s, in Arizona and New Mexico, listening to a number station that was broadcasting out of Mexico at the time. It's since moved online and has members, including me, in all parts of the U.S. and the world, though a few of our members are from that original group. We're monitoring five stations now. Two that are listenable in Nome, Alaska, presumably broadcasting out of Russia. One in the southwest U.S., broadcasting out of Mexico. One in Greece, and a last one in northern Europe, listenable in southern Norway and Sweden and in Denmark. The way it works is that community members in the areas where these stations are listenable catch the signal and then stream it over the internet where people like me who aren't in those areas can help listen. You can log on whenever you want and take a listen to the stations, but in order to have total coverage and not to miss a broadcast, we all volunteer for a shift. I help listening to the one in the southwest U.S. My shift is from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. We've taken to calling this station Porky Pig, because the tones at the beginning of the broadcast sound a lot like pig snorts. Then, 
After the snorts, a woman's voice reads a series of numbers in English. Two months ago, I was listening on one of my shifts. Like I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of the time, the number stations aren't broadcasting, so you're listening to long stretches of the hiss and pops of an empty radio frequency. Then, if you're lucky during your shift, you'll catch one of these minute-long broadcasts. It's not uncommon to end a shift with four hours of absolutely nothing recorded, though, and that's what it was looking like on this particular occasion. It was just past midnight. I had only an hour left in my shift, and the white noise of the static was lulling me to sleep. My eyes opened and twenty minutes had passed. It was not immediately obvious what had roused me so gently from my nap, but when my mind's attention returned to the number station I was listening to, what was waiting for me wasn't the tones or synthesized voice of a spy station, but something that sent a chill down my spine. Deep in the static, among the white noise. Let me play some of the recording from that night. Did you hear that? It's tough to hear at first, but it's there. I spent some time fiddling with the levels on the recording that night just to be sure and came up with this. That voice. What was that voice doing in the static of a number station? And why did I feel like I had heard that voice before? I didn't tell the rest of the number monitors SW about the voice. I just uploaded the recording and my report of the night's broadcast, of which there were none. I took a shower and went to bed. Although I didn't get much sleep, I just kept replaying that voice in my head saying to give up over and over. At that point in the night, I was sure that I had heard that voice before. Certain of it. Whose voice was it? And thinking about that question led me to another. Who was the voice talking to? Who was the voice telling to give up? Anyone who would listen? Someone in particular? And always in the back of my mind was that I was making the whole thing up, working myself up over nothing. There's a phenomenon with your brain called pareidolia, where your brain imposes a pattern where none truly exists, like seeing a face on the surface of Mars, or a man in the moon, or a voice in static. I fell asleep, finally, with that thought ringing through my head. An email was waiting for me the next morning from one of the other members of Number Monitors SW. They had listened to my recording from the night before for some reason, even though my report didn't list any broadcasts. I know it's weird, she wrote, but sometimes I like to listen to the white noise, and instead of listening to a white noise generator, I'll listen to the static of an empty number station. Do you know what static is? She went on. It's everything. It's the background noise of everything you can imagine, from electronics to machinery to the sun to the Big Bang. It's all in there. And anyway, that's not why I'm writing you. I was listening to your file on my way off to Dreamland when I heard it. Did you hear it too? 
the voice buried deep in the background. Was it talking to you? Are you the one that should give up? What does it want you to give up? Then she signed her name. My blood ran cold at the suggestion that the voice was talking just to me, and then my blood ran colder because another person had heard it. It wasn't just my mind playing tricks on me like I had hoped. That hope had allowed me to sleep the night before. I glanced at the clock, reading the email and then contemplating what it meant to the situation with the voice had put me 20 minutes behind schedule that morning. I'd need to skip breakfast or I'd be late to work. Skipping breakfast ensured I was grouchy most of the morning. My co-workers noticed, asking if I was okay. I made matters worse by insisting that I was. I went home at lunch exhausted and angry. My plan was to eat a big lunch and take a nap, waking up in a few hours feeling completely better, at which point I could shut my brain off, watch some television, and recharge. I had never had anything dominate my thoughts like this voice and its message. Give up. Give up what? When I pulled into my parking space, my plan went out the window. I hurried to the door and rushed into my apartment, and as soon as I was in, I turned on my computer, put my headphones on, and turned on the stream of Porky Pig. A broadcast was just wrapping up as I started listening, the female voice reading the last of a string of numbers to some spy station somewhere waiting for something. Then, the long silence started. The long silence that wasn't really silence, but static. And anyway, the long silence is what I was interested in. The voice wasn't there. I listened for an hour or so, adjusting the volume on my headphones, quieter, louder, quieter, louder, hoping to catch a hint of that voice, but none came. I made myself a sandwich and laid on the couch, where I fell asleep until nightfall. The voice was back, just underneath the static, when I put the headphones back on at around 8pm that night. I wasn't on a shift or anything. I only did every other day, but I was damn curious why the voice wasn't there when I came home earlier. Give up, give up, give up, that familiar voice kept repeating, and when I blurted out, give up what, the voice responded, your will. My heart stopped beating in my chest for what felt like minutes. My arms and legs got cold as the blood retreated from them. I took my headphones off and spun around in my chair, planning on getting up and leaving my computer for the night. My eyes fell on one of the dark corners of the room, and whether it was another instance of pareidolia, I don't know, but I think I saw a face in the darkness. And then I heard the face say, give up, before I lost consciousness and fell to the floor. The sun was shining when I woke up on the floor of my office. It was nearly half of the way through the workday at that point, and I couldn't muster the energy to care. I was hungry, so I ate some plain bread and drank a glass of water. That's all I really eat nowadays. I haven't been outside in a while, and when I do, I don't like it very much. It hurts my eyes. I'm just so tired all the time, I can barely summon the energy to listen to the static on Porky Pig, and that's all I really want to do anymore. Listen to the static. Listen to the voice, and let the voice take my will. 
This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both Fever Dreams and In the Static, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Sickness and to Health. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. This is Jeff Owens from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. How about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horrors Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. <laughs>